everyone. My name is Joseph Patridge, and I'm the director of the Wirth Institute for Austrian and Central European Studies. I'd like to welcome you to today's talk, where I'll be discussing in some detail uh, what historians have come to know as the Little Ice Age. I want to talk about this change in climate, which is characteristic of the period between, say, the 16th and to the 19th century, with an emphasis on looking at what was going on in the 16th century, which is more my specialty. Uh, and I want to give some examples from some of my own research, uh, talking about the consequences, perhaps, of this ice age, this change in the climate, on the politics of Central Europe, and um, particularly on the one of the phenomenon associated with it that is the deforestation which takes place. So I'll look, I'll talk a little bit generally about the phenomenon and how historians and historical climatologists have uh, worked on this topic, now how we understand what the climate was like in the early modern period. And then I'll go to a case study from 1515 when a diplomatic meeting was held in Bratislava and in Vienna and was affected by the weather. And I'll talk about another big assembly, a Reichstag, an imperial assembly, which was held in Speyer on the Rhine River in Germany now uh, in 1570. And finally, I'll uh, talk a little bit about some of the research I did here at the University of Alberta in connection with a presentation I gave on International Mountain Day uh, relating to uh, Salzburg and uh, the Prince Bishopric of Salzburg and its relationship with uh, salt mining and forests. Before I begin, maybe I could just remind you what we talked about last time, and that is I discussed the so-called Black Death or the demographic collapse of the mid-14th century and the consequences that had for European society, but also then how it kind of set the stage for the Habsburg dynasty to be able to benefit from the changes which occurred in the economy of Central Europe in the period after the Black Death. So the last time we were basically in the 14th century, what I called the calamitous 14th century, quoting Barbara Tuckman. And today we'll move into the 16th century, uh, where I'll talk about this climate change that people have uh, discovered, found out more about over the last few years. And then uh, maybe I'll set up some discussion for the next presentation, which will be about the marriage diplomacy of the Habsburg dynasty, and particularly about the women of the dynasty who marry foreign princes or who move out of the house uh, and deal with uh, diplomacy from a different angle. But today, let's talk about cold. I know here in Edmonton, at least, we're beginning to get a little bit of sense that winter is on its way. In Edmonton, you always have the sense that practically that winter may be on its way. Uh, but I look out the window here in my office and I see the trees beginning to change colors, the temperatures getting a bit brisk. Um, and it reminds me of the research which has been done mostly since the end of the Second World War, trying to pin down some specifics about climate change, historical climate change. A lot of this goes back to the great French historian Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie, 
who wrote a history of climate already back in the 1960s. It's been translated into English as Times of Feast, Times of Famine. In it, he began the study of historical climatology, or I'm not sure if he's really the be- began it, but he's a big name in the development of the field. Um, he and others have increasingly started to look at not only the um, chronicle evidence, the narrative evidence of the past, which can tell us a little bit about what the weather was like, but also the physical evidence, what some people call the man-made archives and the natural archives that help us understand the past. This is what uh, I think is kind of funnily called um, weather hindcasting, right? Instead of weather forecasting, with which we're all pretty familiar, I guess. There's also something called weather hindcasting, where historians and geographers and hydrologists and other scientists and scholars spend a lot of time trying to understand what happened in the past, uh, not just predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Is it going to rain? Is it going to snow or whatever? And they use all kinds of sources. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary field. Uh, they look at um, tree rings, I know. They look at uh, reports of harvests, when the harvest came in, when uh, they look at prices. Uh, um, they go around also um, cataloging high water marks. You've probably seen these. I know we have some here in Edmonton under the new Walterdale Bridge. They mark the various flood stages over time on the North Saskatchewan River here. Uh, I'm sure you can find those in many places, and they've cataloged those to get a sense of the chronology of flooding and to try to see when the water levels were high, water levels were low. A big aspect of this research And a lot of the evidence, which has been adduced over time, has been dealing with glaciology, that is, the study of the glaciers as they get larger and smaller. And there's a lot of interest in the early modern period of the extent of the glaciers. The glaciers were getting bigger and bigger. Um, It's estimated that some of the glaciers in Central Europe, in the Alps, for example, were longer by several kilometers than they are nowadays. And, of course, now we know that uh, we are in a different phase of climate history, Uh, the, the, the... changed more toward the warming, Uh, but today you'll have to kind of imagine the opposite. What was it like for the men and women and children living in the early modern period when things were getting colder and colder and the uh, glaciers were getting bigger, the so-called Fannin stage of glacier expansion. Uh, We also uh, have uh, other kinds of sources. City Chronicles, I think, are a major one. Those are kind of weird if you've ever read them because they have a real mishmash of stuff in them. It could be anywhere from there was a flood or there was a cold or there was a dog born with two heads or we saw a meteor or the king of such and such stopped by, whatever. I mean, they're a very complicated source to use, a variety of different evidence in them, but climatologists, historical climatologists have mined them for data and have come up with pretty elaborate databases. And if you're really interested in this, I, I would recommend you go online and you look, for example, at the database EuroClimhist, C-L-I-M-H-I-S-T, based in Bern. 
in Switzerland or the Historische Klimadatenbank, Bank, the Historical Climate Data Bank, uh, which is called uh, HISTCLID, H-I-S-K-L-I-D, HISTCLID and EuroClimHIST, will give you a sense of the, all of the data which has been uh, established or has been uh, developed to try to get us a, a sense of what the climate was like. There are other historical works which I'm using in today's discussion, such as Brian Fagan's The Little Ice Age, how Climate Made History from 1300 to 1850, or Wolfgang Beringer's Cultural History of Climate. I like Rudiger Glaser's. Um, he was one of the editors of this collection called Climatic Variability in 16th Century Europe. And uh, people often point when they think about the Little Ice Age to the uh, groundbreaking work back in the 1980s of uh, Gene Grove, who wrote the book The Little Ice Age. What they all are agreeing on more and more is that the period, uh, say, in the 16th to the mid-19th century was marked by a lot of glacial activity, that is, expansion of glaciers, uh, cold winters, wet summers, leading to poor harvests, um, often rivers freezing in the winter, reports of the freezing of the Rhine River in the 1560s, even the Lagoon of Venice freezing over. This is a phenomenon that we see across most of Northwest Europe and Central Europe, and it has major consequences. We're not 100% certain why. Of course, there's various theories about why the weather got colder and wetter and the harvest got worse and worse. Going back in some ways to what I talked about last time about the early 14th century, which was a similarly crappy time to live, uh, this period, especially the later 16th and into the 17th centuries, maybe the time of Shakespeare, for those of you who know uh, English literature history, uh, this time period is marked by um, the highest death rates ever recorded in European history when people were shorter than ever before or after in the last two millennia. Um, and, and we don't know for certain, as I said, why this happened, but the theories are around things like maybe there was a decline of solar activity. Uh, apparently there are fewer sunspots reported to have occurred in this time period, the so-called spore minimum from 1425 to 15. 75, probably had something to do with the colder weather, wetter weather in Europe. Uh, but also, um, it seems like there's reports of volcanic activity. That's another common explanation for why the weather got colder, uh, was because of volcanic activity, especially in the period between 1550 and 1700 around the world. So uh, you've probably heard this theory about volcanoes to talk about some of the winters that never ended or the year without a summer or other uh, contributions to vo volcanic activity, maybe even theories about dinosaurs. I don't know where to go with all of that. But it does seem like the period of the late 16th into the 17th centuries, we have um, Lots of malnutrition, the skeletons we find, the teeth of the skeleton show malnutrition. As I said already, the people seem to be shorter, the death rates uh, were very high, um, and there probably were psychological consequences too, not just physical consequences of this period of, of low um, 
light to short summers and all. Uh, people suffering from seasonal affective disorder now can probably sympathize with the people of the early modern period who, who probably suffered from similar symptoms, especially if you think of not seeing the sun all summer long. There's various consequences historians have pointed to as potentially tied to the uh, change of weather in the late 16th and early to the 17th century. Uh, you probably can picture some of these early modern Renaissance era clothes that people wore. Think about all the layers and the covering. Well, that's not just fashion. That's to stay warm, right? It's cold outside and it's also cold inside. Um, there's new technologies that they have to develop to try to keep warm. Uh, cockle often, the, the kind of special ceramic ovens to, to kind of keep the heat in. Um, other things happen too. People have theorized, you know, that with the lower, the shorter growing season, what are you going to have? Well, you can't have wine as much. There's not as much wine uh, developed or not as many grapes planted. The vineyards retreat. So there's whole sections of Europe that once had wine and maybe are now having wine again, but um, didn't have wine before. And the switch over to beer, right? That hearty brew that's going to uh, be uh, more characteristic of this period than the wine, perhaps. Uh, or even art historians have looked and studied the paintings of the period, and they claim, and it's an interesting claim, that if you look at them, you'll see more evidence of bad weather, low clouds, more snow. Um, this is a, a, a theory which I find intriguing. It's hard to prove that this is only reflection of the... Um, the weather change, it could be a reflection of, I don't know, the interest of the painter or the, the, the style of the painter, but, but still, uh, there is a lot of evidence that things were getting bad. Christian Fiste, for example, the, uh, the environmental historian says, and I quote, crises were more frequent and severe between 1570 and 1630 than in any other uh, than in any other period in the last millennium, with the exception of the 1340s. Unquote. And you know the 1340s already, because I talked about that last time, uh, the setup to the Black Death. So let me uh, briefly tell you a little bit about my three case studies that I want to go into some detail on to help you understand the potential consequences of this, besides just people drinking more beer, putting on more layers of clothes, uh, sitting closer to the fireplace, being kind of melancholy and sad, depressed uh, because of no sun, um, you know, the things I just mentioned, painting pictures of dark clouds and low-lying uh, weather systems and all that. Uh, there are also, I think, uh, substantial consequences to, say, for example, the political structure and the political situation in early modern Europe that we can trace to or connect to the, um, the weather changes. I mostly mentioned the late uh, 16th into the 17th century, and I think I mentioned this to you last time when we talked uh, that, or when I talked, you just sat there, I think, but when I talked um, uh, last time, I had said that my main specialty of research is between 1550 and 1650 or so, but the, the historians of climate do push this back earlier than that, and uh, my first case study comes from the year 1515. This is based on a lecture I gave in Vienna uh, in 20. 15, marking the 500th anniversary of this diplomatic congress that met there. Um, and I had based my presentation in Vienna on a lecture I gave at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem on Christmas Eve the year before. That was a fascinating experience to be in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve. I'll uh, leave that to the side for now. You can ask me about it later if you want. Um, 
1515, in the summer of 1515, there was a giant diplomatic meeting that was held um, in Vienna. It was a meeting that in some ways sets up the political constellation of Central Europe for the next few hundred years. Um, of course, can't go into it too much today, but the ruler of Poland-Lithuania, this giant commonwealth and kingdom uh, in Eastern Europe or to the east, uh, Poland-Lithuania, this the joint combination of giant territory, including what's now Belarus and Lithuania and Poland and Ukraine. It's a giant thing out there. Uh, the ruler of that came to Vienna uh, along with his relative from the same family, the Jagiellonian dynasty, one of the big rival dynasties of the Habsburgs in this period. Uh, his relative was the king of Bohemia and Hungary and Croatia, right? Uh, the, the big um, conglomerate uh, kingdom uh, right next door to the Austrian holdings. I talked with you about last time how the Habsburgs had that. And they met with the elected Roman emperor, Maximus Maximilian I, who um, uh, reigned as elected emperor of the Romans from 1508 to 1519, um, they got together to discuss the future and future alliances and how these families were going to work together or not, the, the Agalonians on the one side, the Habsburgs uh, on the other side. Uh, I looked at some various records, some published documents associated with this giant congress, uh, sometimes called the First Congress of Vienna, echoing, uh, echoed in 1815 after the Napoleonic Wars and the Second Congress of Vienna. Uh, I looked at some published records along with the uh, correspondence of the English ambassador to the uh, Habsburg court, Sir Robert Wingfield, who was there representing His Majesty Henry VIII, uh, the King of England, who had uh, taken over the throne a few years before. Uh, Henry was always looking for allies against the French. I talked a little bit about this last time, the ongoing disputes that had gone on for a long time in the Middle Ages between uh, various dynasties over who's going to rule France, the relationship between the French and the English crowns, often not the best. And Henry was looking for allies. The Habsburgs, in the time since we last met, have acquired now the Low Countries through marriage. So they have the territory and controlling the old Burgundian or a lot of the Burgundian inheritance and there had been a traditional alliance between the English and the Burgundians. Now Burgundy or at least a lot of the Burgundian inheritance, what's now Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, those territories were now under the control of the Habsburgs. So Henry sent his representative, uh, Sir Robert uh, West. And if you read Sir Robert's correspondence, in particular, you get a sense of how complicated the weather made his job. Uh, it was very difficult to travel, right? It's very difficult to get around uh, in Europe without without what the modern transportation networks that we have now. Remember, we used to have airplanes. It's harder to get around on airplanes now, but uh, no road, the road system, the train system, all of that not yet developed, obviously, in the 16th century. So they mostly relied upon water transport, uh, coastal water transport, or in Central Europe, riverine transport. And the rivers were a mess because of this cold, uh, because of this cold weather and the flooding all the time. Uh, so Robert wrote, for example, on 
10th of July in 1505, I passed in 18 hours 100 miles, not without some peril, and most especially because of great trees with rageousness of the flood had taken up root and rind to send them by water. You get a sense of how complicated it was to travel given the conditions. Of course, also remember that the flooding and the high waters that came with this additional rain often in the spring with the snow melts because there's more snow or in the summer after long rains in July and August, which often led to flooding. They would rip up the road system, which was often along the banks of the rivers, and they would destroy the bridges. We have records from Robert, too, talking about how after the Congress is over, the people couldn't get away because the bridges over the Danube were smashed down by trees going by or whatever. Um, There's a lot of reports in his writing or a lot of discussion in his writings of various kinds of um, hindrances uh, based upon the weather. And it just makes me think, and I'd like you to think about how a society or a set of societies in Central Europe, uh, based on holding together through muddy roads and overrun rivers, is going to be affected um, and how it's going to be difficult to keep those societies together and difficult for diplomatic um, uh, relations, obviously. Originally, they had wanted to have this meeting in Bratislava, which is now the capital of Slovakia, about 70 kilometers uh, down the Danube from Vienna. Uh, Can't get into it here, but there's a lot of discussion about where to have it. Bratislava, it was in the Kingdom of Hungary, so it was the home court for the Agalonians. They wanted to have this meeting there. Vienna is in Austria in the Holy Roman Empire, so that was the home court for the Habsburgs and Maximilian. They were trying to figure out a marriage negotiation and get their kids, especially Maximilian's grandchildren, married off and create a marriage alliance. I'll talk more about that those next time. Um, but the big border between the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary was in between these two cities, and the Danube is what held them together, what connected the two, and there was a lot of problem getting back and forth, and the Danube had flooded a lot. There was a millennial flood in 1501 in August, which was horrible. Apparently, there was a major flood in 1503, 1508, so here in 1515, they're worried about the connections, the communication back and forth between these two cities. The two princes of Hungary and Croatia uh, and uh, Bohemia on the one hand and Poland-Lithuania on the other are sitting in Bratislava wanting to have the big meeting there so they can show off and, and host the, the, the Congress. Uh, but unfortunately for them, a fire on the 29th of April destroys about a third of all the buildings in Bratislava, which wasn't a very big place in the first place back then. It's now much larger since it's become the capital of Slovakia. But um, that meant that they couldn't be at home anymore, and they had to agree later in the summer to go upstream and meet Max on his home court in his own city of Vienna. The only other thing I'd want to say right now about this Congress or this meeting of uh, 1515 and the effects the weather had on it is that even when these giant courts of all these courtiers, there's reported to be 2,600 horses in the retinue of the Yagalonian princes who come upstream or who come up across land. They're not, uh, I think, driving the horses in the water or riding the horses in the water. They come up uh, and they get to Vienna and they're going to have a giant entree and they're going to impress the heck out of the Habsburgs and the population of Vienna and show how powerful these people are. And it rains cats and dogs. 
Not literally, of course, but it rains cats and dogs. And um, in one of the pamphlets that was written describing this, uh, the writer says, the entree, that is the ceremonial entrance of these thousands of writers trying to express the power of the kingdoms of Poland, Hungary, and Bohemia, are soaked. Um, It lasted two hours nonetheless, and it would have lasted longer, wrote the author. But, quote, the rain wrecked the order and everyone rushed wet to his lodging. It would have been a wonderful, great, never-before-seen entree if it had not been hindered by the rain. So in early modern society, the presentation of power through these ceremonies, like riding in with your retinue of thousands of horsemen, is a big way to show who you are and how powerful you are. And I I wonder if this rain dampened the spirits and also the impression, and everybody ran for cover, apparently. I think often when we think of the past, we think of a dry past, right? We think of a past where everything is sunny and the sun is shining, but that's not the case in the uh, the, uh, 16th century. Let me move quickly to a second uh, example, um, and that is this Reichstag, which was held in Speyer on the Rhine River in 1570. Uh, We have lots of reports from the early modern period of these repeated floods on the Rhine. These are reports and studies by historical hydrologists. This shows you, again, the role of geographers also are playing in the history here. This is another situation where there's not only an imperial assembly, but negotiations for marriage. Actually, there's a marriage uh, that's celebrated at this Reichstag in Speyer in 1570. That's the marriage between Elizabeth Habsburg, the Archduchess, and uh, Charles IX of France. Uh, By the way, I wrote a book about that Archduchess, if you want to find out more about her. Uh, But they go off to uh, France, or uh, she goes off to France uh, after the wedding in October. This is a meeting that goes on for months and months. And I was looking through the documents, and I saw, for example, supplications for uh, by delegates from the traders and teamsters um, about trying to get the king or the emperor to uh, assure that the roads are in better condition because they can't supply the thing. There are thousands of representatives in this. city on the Rhine River, which can't be fed properly because there's no way to get the food to them due to the flooding on the Rhine and the disruption because of the weather of the communication routes, the roads and things leading to it. Spire itself has a creek running into the Rhine from it down the middle of the street of the town. And one of the courtiers, um, Hans Kevin Mueller, reported in his diary that the water levels got so high in the city it was up to the water, to the window ledges. Um, you can try to imagine having a big meeting, having a big, basically, parliamentary meeting, but it had lots of other characteristics too, as I said, diplomatic meeting. There are all these ambassadors there, everything, in the midst of an ongoing flood and rainstorm. Um, the emperor had to ask some of the rulers down the up the Rhine River, that is in Baden, the Margrave of Baden, the city of Strasbourg, and even the Elector Palgrave of the Palatinate uh, for help to try to get supplies to this place for having this assembly. And my question when I think about this is what influence did that 
role have on the way that the negotiations at the assembly went. Because these guys could play important cards. They were the ones bringing the food into the city, right? There were people there who were desperate. Everybody was worried, I think. And in fact, uh, while the meeting was being held on All Saints Day, uh, down river, down the Rhine, there was one of the largest floods in Dutch history. Apparently estimated up to 100,000 people died. And that's going to add to the kind of sense of what worry, uncertainty, and then also dependence uh, for the people in this assembly. So that's the second example quickly was the 1570 Reichstag in Speyer. And finally, let me just say a couple things about another consequence of the um, cold, another consequence of the cold. Of course, what's going to happen when you get cold, you want to get warm. How do you get warm in early modern society? You burn something. What do you burn? Wood. In his very influential and I think excellent book, uh, Wood, A History, uh, by Joachim Radkow, uh, talks about this phase of human history, really from basically early records or even before to up into the 18th century as the Wood Age. The Wood Age um, is going to be affected by this little ice age. Put the wood age and the little ice age together, and what do you get? Well, it's not really rocks, paper, scissors, but you know what's going to win. The cold is going to win over the wood, and the wood is going to come in shorter and shorter supply. Um, so there's a big controversy, and there's, a, there's actually a very interesting uh, history of civil culture, right? The, 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 what you plant or what grows in the woods. And this is tied to research that I did associated with the history of Salzburg, uh, where Salzburg is a place that's almost totally dependent upon, uh, or at least in the early modern period, was totally dependent upon salt production, the mineral deposits I mentioned at the end of my last talk. Uh, and in order to get the salt, you needed the wood uh, uh, right, because what they did was they ran brine through um, uh, salt caves and into salt mines, and then they had to boil the brine uh, in order to get the salt, which was in big demand, and then they would ship that salt. But it apparently it creates a massive demand for wood, um, and the wood is now in demand for other reasons too, because they need it for heating. Uh, in the traditional histories of Europe, often this shortage of wood, which is characteristic, uh, increasingly characteristic of the early modern period, um, also is used as an explanation to help uh, figure out why Europeans were ending up going into the Americas or here to Canada. Uh, apparently in Canada, there's lots of wood, or there was, and I think there still is, lots of wood around. And so people were looking for wood because of the deforestation. One of the factors about reasons for the deforestation was the cold winters and the bad um, uh, uh, weather. Uh, there's a particularly useful, awful weather between 1565 and 1629. Um, and, and, and really, if you think about it, and I hope you do, I, I can't go into it too much, but if you think about it, um, the snow and the cold can have good sides and bad sides. Uh, not only does it require more wood use and makes a strain on the natural resources, particularly the heating resources, but that and those resources are wanting to be used for other things, as I said, like the Prince Bishops of Salzburg wanting to use that wood for boiling their salt water to make salt to sell. Um, but the the 
the winters could also actually make it easier to get around and communicate and move. And the water supply, think about that. There's more water. It's, it's not only bad somehow because it's flooding, as I said in the case of the Danube or the Rhine, but it also means that you can use that water, which is running down hills, to turn mill wheels or, in this case, to float trees down, right? To float the wood down so that you can get it down to the places where you want to burn it. Um, on the other hand, actually, there's a big debate about what that wood should be for because some people uh, thought that wood should be for building and they needed the wood to build stuff out of. And so they wanted hardwood, right? That would be good for building. Other people wanted softwood, right? That would be better for burning or also it floats better. Uh, so it's something that you want to have to get down the river, uh, down, down these streams out of the mountains because now there's more water around. Also in the winter, uh, the snow allows for better transport. We know up here in Alberta or in the north how actually there are parts of northern Canada which are more easily accessible in winter because of the winter highways. You might have seen the shows on TV about this, uh, the ice highways, than they are than they are in the summer when things are muddy or difficult to, to traverse. And the same thing is in the case in Europe, that some people benefit, or the situation is better for some people in the early modern period because of these long, cold winters. It's easier to communicate or move things around in the winter. It changes um, the seasons or what people use. The sledges that are easier to trans use to transport bulk items mean that you can move things sometimes better in the winter than in the summer. Um, overall, the conflicts, though, in Salzburg and other places due to the weather are legion. And it becomes very controversial. The archbishops of Salzburg have to keep setting up police ordinances. The Waldordnung of Prince Archbishop uh, Matthias Long, for example, is dated 1524, trying to regulate, regulate the use of the forest and also influence what kind of trees are planted there. The farmers with livestock that I talked about last time, or the peasants with livestock, they would like to let their cattle or whatever move through the forest and eat things, and that affects certain kinds of trees. Uh, spruce trees apparently have... Um, uh roots that are higher, closer to the surface, and so they are more affected if you let your cattle or goats or sheep or whatever graze around in there uh, than, say, fir trees, which are close to the surface. So uh, you've got a change in the, um, the organization of the trees in the forest based upon this competition. Also, uh, as population goes up, and I, maybe I'll end on this point, uh, as the population goes up in 16th century Europe, probably reaching back to the levels it was, say, in early 14th century, before the Black Death I discussed last time, uh, the demand for agricultural products, the demand for grain and not just uh, livestock, is also going up. So there's, there's, a, there's a dispute or people wanting to get control of land in order to plant grain on. All of this is a challenge for the environmental situation. Uh, the the conflict between what uh, in Austria is known as the Kröndelbauers and the Hörndelbauers, that is the, the farmers who raise grain and the farmer and the um, people who raise livestock, is also reflected in this late medieval, uh, sorry, early modern period where you have the um, uh, conflict make it even more complicated by the role of the ecclesiastical authorities, the Prince Bishop of Salzburg, who wants a different thing. He wants the trees. He wants the forests kept. We used to think for a long time that uh, the 
bad weather also affected mining and, and affected some of the um, mineral resource production that we discussed last time. It doesn't seem like that was the case all that much. It seems more now that the overseas competition, but also just the increasing cost of getting the salt or gold, or in this case, I guess, uh, silver out of the mines is probably the more important uh, factor. But uh, it is the case that the glaciers were expanding slowly and evidence could be seen all around them of how the ice was going. And so in Salzburg, they could in the late 16th century uh, see that the mines that they had made in the 15th century were now under, I don't know, meters of ice as the glaciers expanded. So the glaciers expansion is what made people think about how the weather was changing in early modern society, the so-called Little Ice Age that marked this period Little Ice Age had many, many consequences. It might have affected the politics, as I said, with the Congress of Vienna in 1515 or the outcome of assemblies such as the Reichstag and Speyer in 1570. It had also affected how people dealt with issues associated with um, natural resource development, particularly uh, lumber, wood, uh, as a result, the, the result of the deforestation. For all of these reasons, historians nowadays really think that if you want to understand the early modern period well, you have to understand the Little Ice Age. Thank you very much for your attention, and I will look forward to talking with you again when we move off and talk about Habsburg marriage diplomacy and the women of the Habsburg dynasty who married outside the home. Thank you very much again, and if you have any questions or like to talk more about this, please feel free to contact me at the Worth Institute. Till next time, bye.